We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. Hello listeners, you're listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio and podcast show that brings independent and interesting STEM, so that's science, technology, engineering, maths and medicine, to you from Tasmania. This show is supported by Edge Radio, Hobart's premium news station, so head on over to edge.org.au for more info about them. My name is Ollie Dove and I'm joined by my co-host Ellie Clapham. But before we begin... I would like to pay my respects to the traditional owners on the land on which we are recording, the Palawa people. We are recording here on Luchuita, and I would also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land from wherever you, our listener, are tuning in from. On behalf of everyone here and at home, I pay my respects to elders past and present. So, Ellie, who do we have with us today? Today we have Dr Camille White from the Institute of Marine and Antarctic Studies, also known as IMAS here in Tasmania. So Camille is a team leader with the Aquaculture Interactions Program at IMAS and her research focuses on marine ecology, marine food webs and the interaction that marine farms have with the environment around them. So thanks for joining us today Camille. I am really excited to dive into this conversation because Honestly, marine ecology and marine food webs is something that I really don't know much about at all. And I have a feeling this is going to be super interesting. So thank you. Let's start at the very beginning of your career. So what sparked your interest in marine science? Thank you, um, Ellie, for inviting me along to speak today. Um, so I've always had uh, an interest in science. I was, I was a pretty nerdy kid growing up. And I also spent a lot of time on the beach or on the coast. So we grew up near the water and I think you know that just that exposure from a fairly early age sort of sparked my interest in in that being combined combining with a sort of a natural nerdy um, disposition and uh, I guess the the logical continuation was that from that was I uh, got into a science degree after university and when I got to uni I really just sort of followed my nose in terms of subject selection and, and what I wanted to do and I sort of just ended up in marine science um, just from general interest and then sort of following following, um, following uni, I sort of um, followed my interests again and sort of springboarded off that, that marine science degree and sort of had a bit of a long and crooked um, progression, but have ended up working back at a university as a, as a research fellow um, in marine science, which is fantastic. I know that marine science is the study of life within the ocean or <laughs> a body of water, and that is the extent of my knowledge. So can you please just explain what marine science is and what your research currently focuses on? Um, so I actually think that's a pretty good definition, Ali. <laughs> um, I would think of marine science as the study of the ocean and, and everything connected to it. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, broadly that, that, that's it in a nutshell. Um, in terms of my research in interests on a, on a much broader level, it's around the sustainability of human impact. Uh, or human activities in the coastal zone. So, you know, how do how do the things that humans do in that in that marine coastal zone influence the marine environment? So, that's quite broadly. Um, within IMAS, as you mentioned at the start, I work in the Aquaculture Interactions Team or the program, um, which examines the way in which aquaculture interacts and impacts the marine environment. So, um, in Tasmania, the the two example or the example of that currently is is um, salmon aquaculture. Um, we've also done a little bit with oysters in the past, but less so at the moment. And um, seaweed is very much the new kid on the block. So um, we do have a, a um, 
growing interest in terms of having a sustainable seaweed industry in Tasmania as well. So um, at this stage, the majority of my research focuses on salmon aquaculture and, and the environment. But recently we have been doing more and more research looking at um, how, the, how, se- how the seaweed aquaculture um, can develop and trying our best to support government in terms of the sustainability of a fledgling industry. That's really interesting. So this may seem like a strange question, but when you're studying marine life, how do you actually study it? Do you go into that environment <laughs> or do you make a mini marine environment in a lab? How does no, it no, work? No. Um, so uh, all of the above, Ellie. So, um, you know, some of our studies are observational where we, we, we you know, go into the marine environment with a, with a clipboard and, and have a look at what's there. And um, certainly a lot of our studies that we've been doing, um, one of my bread and butter research areas for the last four or five years has been around how rocky reefs interact with salmon aquaculture in, in the marine environment. And as part of that, we do a lot of um, observational surveys looking at the biodiversity um, in all sorts of um, levels of exposure to, to farming, um, but also how the ecosystem functions. Um, so, you know, what's there, how's it structured, how's it responding to nutrient enrichment, all of that sort of stuff. So a lot of that, um, you know, the backbone of a lot of that study is observational research, so going into the marine environment and taking notes or collecting data. Um, but, you know, we also do some manipulative stuff as well, and that's when you can bring you know bits and pieces back into the lab and subject them to all sorts of things um, and, and see how they respond in a controlled environment and... Those sorts of things are good for proof of concept. So we might say, okay, is that piece, is that species of algae um, sort of a, an indicator of organic enrichment? Um, if so, um, can we do a proof of concept experiment in the lab where we expose that piece of algae to, you know, or that species of algae to various um, levels of nutrient enrichment? Does it respond? Does it not respond? How does it take up the nitrogen? Are we seeing biochemical changes in the tissues? So do things like the um, the stable isotopes, which gives us an idea of how the plant's absorbing nitrogen cha- change, or you know, are there any any overall changes that can link that that species of seaweed back to a nutrient response due to aquaculture? So, those are the sorts of um, those are the sorts of examples where we might go into the lab, and then yeah, we do we do work where we actually look at the at the biochemical composition of the tissue um, of of various plants and animals as well. There's sometimes a trend seen that the further you progress in an academic career, the further you move away from fieldwork and lab <laughs> work opportunities. Your laugh signals that you've <laughs> heard of that trend. Are you still able to use your diving background these days? Yeah, I, look, I get out into the field as as, as often as I can, um, Ollie. It's it's always a pleasure, and I think it's it's um, actually a real privilege to to be able to work environment and particularly to do some of the dive work that that we do. It's just utterly amazing. Um, I don't get as much time in the field as I used to. I think, you know, when I was working prior to my PhD, when I was working as a research assistant in Victoria, I like, I think I did, I think I did over a thousand dives in one year, one year, and I'd worked out I'd had two dry weeks for the entire year or something, something ridiculous like that. I don't get the time to do that, unfortunately, um, anymore. So I am a lot more desk bound than I used to be. Um, but um, I've got some fantastic staff who go out into the field and, and collect data um, for us in our research program. And um, wherever I can, I do try to tap back into that. And I also get to work, live vicariously through students these days as well, which is which is um, excellent fun. And yeah, I always try to make it out in the field with my students at some point in time. Well, that has been an excellent introduction into your work and your career, Camille. So stick with us for part two as we delve more into Camille's work on salmon farming and marine food webs here in Tasmania.
You're listening to That's What I Call Science and today we are talking about marine science. My name is Ellie Clapham and I'm joined by Ollie Dove along with our expert guest Camille White from IMAS. So Camille, your research focuses on the interaction between salmon farming and human activity and the temperate reef ecosystems. So why actually is it that that is being researched by your team? Why does it need to be researched? Yeah, so I think, um, I think the research that our team does is, is quite highly applied. Um, and within our research team, I guess our main focus is to provide results that can be used, um, can be used by managers to make decisions around, around the industry. So a lot of the science that we provide um, goes directly to, to, to the decision makers and um, I guess provides them with the means of making evidence-based um, decisions around, around the future of the industry and, and how to manage it sustainably. So, um, you know, I think the need for that sort of research is actually pretty clear in a state like Tasmania. It's, the coastal waters tend to be fairly tightly contested and, and that's not just within aquaculture. I think, you know, there's a, everyone in Tasmania that, that you talk to has, is concerned about the state of the environment. Like it's a, it's a, it's quite a, it's a state where people have a strong maritime connection and, and people are concerned about their coastal ecosystems. And so I think people want to see that, that, that the marine resources are, are being managed in a good way, whether it's for industries like the salmon aquaculture or seaweed aquaculture or, um, or even if it's commercial and recreational fishing or, or, or for pure conservation purposes. You know, there is inherent value in managing an ecosystem for conservation as well. So um, I guess our research helps to inform, um, inform government around how to, how to best... Um, how to best manage sometimes competing priorities within within coastal zones, and you know I guess help to steer um, steer them towards um, an, an outcome that that can potentially be sustainable for all industry in the coastal zone. That's really interesting. So there's actually many reasons, especially in Tasmania, as to why you'd need to research um, in the marine science area and for what your research group does as well. So we've had a brief introduction into uh, what your research group studies. So let's just dive right into that. Have you actually found that there is an interaction between marine farms and the environment around them? Well, yeah, yes, for sure. So if you look at how, um, if you look at how the salmon or a salmon farm works, um, so finfish aquaculture in Tasmania is open cage, which means that water essentially flows um, through and around the cage. And this sort of setup is actually really important for the health of the fish in the cages because the water movement ensures that they have enough oxygen to breathe. Um, but also the flow of the water actually clears the waste from the cage as well. So it ensures that the fish growing out in the open oceans actually have a clean environment to grow in, which is quite important from a fish health perspective. But it also means that the, all of the waste materials coming from the cage are flushed directly into the environment, which essentially means that you know fish poo and fish wee, like everything else, and um, the poo and the wee essentially form sort of a waste stream into the environment. And, and that's, that's, that's well known. There's no, um, there's no dispute around that. So um, the poo, or the solid fraction, um, it tends to settle on the seafloor underneath the cage, um, whereas the wee, which is mainly dissolved nitrogen, is released into the water column. So those sorts of two pathways, I guess, um, have different interactions sort of attached to them. Um, but in both environments, both the seafloor and the water column, the waste will stimulate, stimulate some sort of productivity. So, um, you know, this is essentially the, the waste source stream is essentially a source of food or, or, or nutrient to the marine plants and animals that exist um, in and around the cages. And we actually need those marine plants and animals um, to remediate the waste back into the ecosystem. So um, 
Organic enrichment, which is something that a lot of people don't understand, is that organic enrichment is actually a natural process as well as an anthropogenic one. There's lots of examples of natural sources of organic material in the marine environment, like our estuaries or runoff from land or, or various bits and pieces that we get you know, following storm events. So all of the rainfall that we've had this year will, will directly contribute to the nutrient loadings in, in the marine systems. And so there's a whole heap of organisms who natu- that naturally exist in marine systems that that are there essentially to mop up the excess nutrient and and um, and waste in the environment, and um, I guess the difference between sort of a natural anthropogenic, uh, I'm sorry, a natural um, source of nutrients and an anthropogenic source of nutrients is that an anthropogenic source of nutrients tends to be more sustained in nature, and so I guess when we're looking at um, at um, an anthropogenic nutrient source in terms of um, a management framework, the challenge is ensuring that the amount of nutrient entering the environment stays within the carrying capacity of the system, and so. By carrying capacity, I, I mean you know the, the the potential of those plants and animals to keep on absorbing all of that excess nutrient at a sustainable rate. So, I think you know in terms of something like salmon farming, um, the carrying capacity is is highly dependent on the environment um, where the farm is actually located. So, in um, sheltered environments with lots of low flow, so low water movement, um, the waste products tend to accumulate sort of in the indirectly. In directly around the cage environment so it tends to be a lot of waste and it's quite concentrated whereas in well flushed environments the high water movement the waste is the high water movement ensures that the waste is, is quite widely dispersed but it's in much lower concentrations so um, the, the all the marine plants and animals that that mop up these these wastes are able to do it um, quite easily and, and the waste is assimilated back into the environment. So the interaction that the farms have in the marine environment around them is that usually an enhancing interaction or would it have a burdening effect on the environment around it? So I think what we see generally with um, with, the, with the research that we do is that the effect of the interaction is actually largely dependent on the place where um, the farm is located. So, um, you know, obviously, as I said before, in, in, in higher flow environments, that interaction tends to be more dilute. Um, in, in low flow environments, it tends to be more concentrated. But also, obviously, also farm management practices on the actual lease that you're looking at will have an effect as well. So how many fish are there, how much feed is going into the environment, how much, um, how much um, you know, the, the fish are excreting or, or, um, or how much waste is essentially leaving the cage. So I guess when you look at this interaction, it can sort of happen on quite a few different levels. So you have that sort of local scale interaction where, you know, this sort of acute um, zone around the cage where a lot of the waste, or particularly the solid waste, the poo, is being deposited. And, um, you know, these, that sort of how that, that acute footprint looks around the cage is really highly dependent on the depth the farm's located, the exposure, so the water movement. Um, and, you know, that's where the sort of the there's a bit of debate around, you know, sheltered versus offshore environments for farming at the moment. Um, when the waste lands on this, um, the sediment, the, the waste is actually assimilated for it through a very predictable effect of organic enrichment. And this is kind of, I guess, where you come back to that enhancing part of your question. So, um, you know, about oh, 40 years ago, um, two scientists came up with a model, like a conceptual model around how waste is or any sort of um, you know, organic enrichment whether it's anthropogenic or natural is sort of remediated within an environment and um, it starts off with the assumption I guess and this is this certainly holds up around Tasmania the waters around Tasmania are naturally nutrient poor that the productivity of any ecosystem is limited by nutrients so what you have as a starting point is you have nutrients going into the environment and it actually stimulates productivity um, so, you know, you tend to see with really low levels of organic enrichment, you have an initial increase in the number of animals that you find. 
you have an initial increase in the biomass of, of plants and animals that you find and you also have an initial increase in the biodiversity that you find there because it creates more competition and creates more, creates more, creates more opportunity um, for, for, um, for animals to consume waste in, um, or consume food in different ways. But as you sort of track further along the spectrum of organic enrichment, as you get more and more and more waste in the environment, you get to a point where um, you have the opportunistic species, so species that grow and thrive on a lot of organic material, they tend to take over the ecosystem. So, um, you know, these are the sort of species that have really short life cycles, they don't live for very long and they have really high reproductive outputs. And they tend to take take over and, you know, at the expense of the high biodiversity. So as you get higher and higher um, organic loadings into soft sediment, for example, um, you tend to have the, eventually the biodiversity begins to decline, but you have an increase in the biomass and you tend to have an increase in the abundance of, of one or two species that are particularly good at, at eating all of this waste. Um, and then if you push it all the way to beyond the carrying capacity of the system, then everything collapses. So that was the conceptual model and probably um, this is sort of seminal work that IMAS was involved in in terms of regulating the industry um, you know, maybe 20, 25 years ago is that um, Katrina McLeod, who's actually now the executive director of IMAS, um, for her PhD, she looked at how you could take this conceptual model and turn it into a management framework for the industry. So it's a really, really nice effect of science affecting management. And she came up with a wheel where essentially... She worked Pearson Rosenberg, that, that conceptual model around, you know, how an ecosystem responds to organic enrichment around a, sort of a management wheel where there are nine different stages and you could tell by looking at the sediments where the farm was within that nine stages of organic enrichment. Um, and so most of the leases, all of the leases in Tasmania are actually now monitored or regulated based on that framework. So... Um, all the farms undergo a fallowing period where fish are out of the cages for a couple of months of every year. Um, and when they they restock their cage and they have fish back in the cage, um, they have to do compliance monitoring where they send a rov down and they look at the sediments. And the sediments tell them where they are in that wheel um, in terms of in terms of organic enrichment. And um, you know if they start busting through and they start um, um, you know, the, the sediments degrade too much, then um, they, they need to come up with management strategies on the farm to make sure that the that the um, that the environment stays within you know a certain zone, a certain level of effect. And so that's sort of the local scale interaction. We know how that how, how that responds. So you know to come back to your original question, yes, initially productivity is enhanced, um, and you know we need that enhancement because it's actually those animals that remediate all the waste back into the system. Um, but then if you push it too far, then eventually eventually the system collapses. And um, thanks to a really nifty example of, you know, science affecting management, um, the farms are actually able to track where the sediments underneath their cages are sitting at any given point in time. So that interaction is really interesting and it's nice to know that, as you have said, science can affect management. So what can be done to change this interaction between the farms and the marine environment if you did need to change that interaction? Well, I think you know the. Um, I think if if um, if you get to a situation where um, the farm is having um, an adverse effect underneath the cage, eventually the fish get pulled out of the water. Um, and you know we did actually see that example happening playing out in Macquarie Harbour, where. Um, um, 
know there's been a lot said in the media around Macquarie Harbour, but you know we did get to a point with Macquarie Harbour where you know our, our science was indicating that that you know there was prolonged loss of um, oxygen, so dissolved oxygen oxygen stayed low for a long period of time, um, and also you know we were getting a large drop off in in the abundance and biomass of of the fauna in the sediments. So you know based on um, Based on what our science was showing about the health of Macquarie Harbour, um, you know, government ended up reducing the biomass um, within within Macquarie Harbour, and and these days, you know, we still get asked by by state government to do further research in there that that tracks um, the the animals in the sediments that that are breaking down all of that um, all of that waste, and um, and I think you know that's that's sort of one stream of evidence that that. Um, government might take into their considerations around what the biomass is allowed to be in Macquarie Harbour at any given point in time. Um, that said, there are also lots of things happening in the innovation space, um, you know, with the aim of making the industry more sustainable long term. And um, one of the, I think, one of the biggest innovations in terms of something that the industry has done over the past sort of ten to fifteen years is um, is how they they monitor waste feed going into the environment. So, um, you know, initially when the industry first started 30, 40 years ago, there was a lot of waste feed going in the environment. They had no way of telling how much um, food the fish were eating and um, they didn't know sort of when to stop the feeding. So um, there was a lot of, you know, a lot of waste feed was ending up on the seafloor where obviously it, it stimulates those sort of um, negative, um, negative effects. But... Um, all of the companies in Tasmania now run a f- uh, sort of a, a remote feeding system. So, um, so they've all got, got cameras in all of the cages that monitor fish behaviour. And um, when the fish stop feeding, um, they stop being fed. So, <coughs> it really limits the amount of waste feed that's actually heading into the environment. And it's 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 really quite amazing that you know a cage down at Dover is actually the fish in the cage down at Dover. The the way the feeding's controlled into that cage is actually through an office in in the city of Hobart. So there's people watching the screens and watching the videos during feeding time. And as soon as the fish stop feeding, they stop the feed. And so in terms of benthic impact, um, if you don't have any waste feed hitting the bottom, then then obviously it's going to have much less of an impact. I find it really interesting that that two industries, the food industry and the science industry, can be so interconnected. And I think it's a really great example of just optimising both of those careers or those industries to make the most of the science that's available and how you can impact that to still have salmon food like in our yeah, supermarkets. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a huge amount of technology, I think, that goes into any industry um, these days. And, you know, that that's an example of wireless technology and what, what may or may not have been possible. Um, that's you know, really more than a decade ago in terms of other innovations you know obviously there's um there's always a lot of investigation or, or land-based aquaculture tends to be a bit of a um bit of a buzzword in terms of you know um trying to get um more and more of the life cycle completed on land before they're put out in the oceans which the land just gives land-based aquaculture just gives you more c- control over your waste streams so you know all of the waste is sort of you know concentrated into a pipe and you can have land-based remediation systems um you know i don't think at this stage the technology is a long way off being able to farm to the same extent um that that you can do in the ocean but there are definite um improvements to be made by using a a combination of both land-based and open cage aquaculture in the in the marine environment Um, there's also a push to move aquaculture further offshore so certainly um in norway there's an example of um this amazing um aquaculture facility that's that's being run essentially off um 
off off a floating oil rig with with a huge number of tons and the idea behind those sorts of systems is that you know you can run a much higher biomass for much lower um, environmental effect because um, being a high energy environment the wastes are really dispersed um, and there's a few other bits and pieces I guess that 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 are being played with more and pro- more probably on a global um, level in other countries rather than rather than in Tasmania at the moment but those sorts of innovations relate to things like waste capture can you actually capture the solid waste coming from a cage and funnel it into into something else or remediate it and also um Integrated um, multi-trophic aquaculture is another another sort of buzz term at the moment where you're looking at um, farming um, salmon in conjunction with um, things like shellfish and seaweeds that can remediate um, can remediate the solid and and um, and dissolved waste fractions um, coming from the cages. So there's heaps of you know all of that sort of stuff is is supported in some way by technology or by innovation or by you know um, cross industry collaboration. And sometimes. I think across the course of history we've seen that there have been huge expansions or scientific developments when there's been an interest from the public in it. And so have you seen that across your career, especially here in Tasmania, the increase in the public's drive for more sustainable um, fishing? Is that then pushing for better technology and new innovations? I would say so, for sure. I mean, um, (laughs) I'm sure... sure, um, I'm sure sometimes the industry would wish that the microscope was not not quite so much on them as, as it is, but it does drive improvements um, in sustainability and um, that sort of public scrutiny. And certainly from what we hear, people are much more selective about about making sustainable food choices as well. So um, I think everyone's quite aware of that and, and trying to trying to push towards towards best practice, what, whatever that might be. And you've talked a lot about Norway and what they're doing over there. Within this industry, is there a lot of international cooperation or using what works overseas here? Or is it very much each country has its own way of dealing with their offshore products? So I probably can't speak too much about um, in terms of what happens with, within the industry. I know in terms from a scientific perspective and an environmental monitoring perspective, yes, we, we take a lot of learnings from what happens overseas. And, um, you know, there's... The, as you as you both both know, the scientific um, community doesn't happen within a bubble. So, um, you know, we do have we do try to maintain maintain ties with with um, people working in similar research spaces overseas. And certainly, there's a lot of um, there's differences in in the monitoring and, and regulatory framework um, in Tasmania versus versus other um, you know versus other jurisdictions. And there's certainly key learnings to come out of other jurisdictions as well. So. Um, yeah, it's we always have we always have half an eye to what's going on in other places too, and um, yeah, obviously um, New Zealand is another place where where fin fish aquaculture occurs, so it's it's easy to collaborate with with New Zealand being so close to home. Well, that was fantastic to hear about and to be given an overview of an um, the science behind an industry that really affects a lot of us here in Tasmania, and that we, as you mentioned, the public has a lot of concerns and interest in. So, thank you so much, Camille, for your time today to talk about it with us. I'm sure we could go on for hours about this topic. It is such a huge topic. But unfortunately, we are out of time. So thank you listeners for tuning in today to That's What I Call Science. We love bringing you STEM-related content and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you did love the show, you can get in touch with us by searching That's What I Call Science or That's Science Taz on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. My name is Ollie Dove and I'd like to give a huge thank you to my co-host Ali Clapham and our expert guest Camille White. So wherever you are, I hope that you all have a wonderful week. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. 
You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science at all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. GemMaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. GemMaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.